Hi, and welcome to Foresight, the CPA podcast, a podcast produced by CPA Canada that explores the future of the accounting profession. I'm your host, David McGuffin. So far in this podcast series, we have spoken about the many ways CPAs are being challenged to think in new ways about their roles and the skills they need to thrive in an ever-changing environment. Few things highlight the scope of the change that is taking place quite like the shifting value of financial statements for investors. Financial statements have long been at the foundation of investment decisions, but increasingly investors can access a myriad of financial tools and alternative sources of information. It's becoming a crowded, fast-moving, and at times chaotic space. And the question is, can financial statements find a role in the new information ecosystem, or are they on their way to becoming relics of a bygone era? We put that question to John Lekomnik. He's Managing Director of Sinclair Capital and a member of Deloitte U.S.'s Audit Quality Advisory Committee. His most recent book is Moving Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, Investing That Matters. Financial statements are not necessarily on their way to becoming relics of a bygone era. I think the way investors have changed is a huge topic. First, we have seen a shift from markets dominated by retail investors to markets dominated by institutions. Clearly, as an institution, you have different ways to access data than individuals did. Secondly, you've had computerization with low-cost computers being around since the early 1980s. That has enabled more calculations and more data crunching. Third, you've had the rise of the internet and then the rise of social media, which just exponentially exploded the amount of information around. So where financial statements used to be the beginning and end I would say, the alpha and the omega of individual investors' research. Maybe they read a newspaper article or a stock tip paper. Maybe they went into a store and looked at competitors' products. But basically, the information they had was financial. And the the things that produced were property and equipment. You know, if you had a factory, the factory is going to continue producing. We've seen a change where you can have, you know, multi-billion dollar companies spring up overnight by writing a piece of code. We've seen massive amounts of data accessible through the internet and able to be parsed to some extent through computerization. And you've seen the institutionalization of the markets so that there are really intelligent people with lots of resources to throw at these issues dealing with it. So it's been a multiplicity of reasons um, from the change in the nature of business from industrial to information, change in the nature of investors from retail to institutional, change in how we get data electronically rather than newspaper or magazine, and change in our ability to parse data with the advent of low-cost computerization. All those things have caused financial statements to stay the same in terms of value, but all the other information around it explode. And when you do the math, that just makes a financial statement less valuable because it's less of 
the totality of the information. I think the profession is at a crossroads. You know, a few years ago, I um, was lucky enough to write a white paper that was had a fairly large launch in London, and I wound up speaking at the House of Commons. But the launch was at the Worshipful Society of Weavers. Exactly what it sounds like, people who wove cloth. And this was one of the medieval guilds. And if you ever go into the Worshipful Society of Weavers, um, you realize they were at the heart of the medieval economy. We don't think of them that way. But these incredible tapestries on the wall, any one of which probably costs more than my house, um, you know, huge gilded ceilings, huge banquet rooms in the heart of London. At some point, weavers fought back against mechanization and progress. And I am not saying whether that was right or wrong, but the world passed them by. If all accountants do is to continue to compile value-realized transaction date financial statements, they will continue to have a profession, much like weavers continue to have a profession, but they will no longer be at the heart of the economy. They need to develop these new skill sets they need to talk about value creation, not just value realization. They need to understand how financial statements link to the broader universe of data, both structured and unstructured, that's out there. And if that happens, the centrality of the profession to the economy will continue. But if not, then um, unfortunately, they could become the weavers of the 21st century, still a profession, still, you know, relatively useful, but not central to the world. That's John Lekomnik. He is executive director of the Investor Responsibility Center Institute and is managing director of Sinclair Capital. One of the things driving this flood of financial information is the rise of artificial intelligence. But does this necessarily mean AI is a threat to the role of CPAs? Kathy Kobe has thought a lot about this. Kathy is the EY Global Trusted AI Advisory Leader. So Kathy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, David. Really happy to be here. So how are organizations using AI? You know, we're starting to see artificial intelligence be used all across an organization. So, you know, there certainly is a lot of data that is housed within the finance organizations, um, but we are seeing it, you know, across the customer-focused areas, manufacturing, the inventory groups. And so, you know, AI is actually finding um, wherever there's any kind of transactional activity, um, there is the use of AI. And it, it really is being used in two main areas. One would be to create new insights um, out of like large sources of data. Um, the second would be looking for like anom anomalies. So, you know, can we get better insights how to, how to better serve our customers, how better to optimize our, our different um, hardware, software networks, but also to, you know, where can we find where things are going wrong and, and more quickly identify those kind of uh, opportunities? 
So, Kathy, I wonder if we can go through some of the areas where you see risks. And let's let's start with design risks. Yes, I think, you know, thinking about risks of AI is actually really should be done at the design stage because, you know, once you train and model an AI, it's so much harder to change it after the fact. And the risks are quite broad. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about the inherent biases within data and how that then can create bias into the outcomes of algorithms. Um, there is risks about, do we really fully understand the decision framework that is being used by the um, AI? Because they're not rules-based system. We're not pre-programming them to make a decision based on some predetermined rules. Instead, we're using probabilities. Um, we're asking the system to, every time it, it goes to do an outcome, to kind of reshift its statistical uh, decision framework. And so um, that creates some risks that, you know, we're not used to uh, managing because we're used to humans taking those kind of judgments and subjectivity and, and trusting that in the broader context of our human cognitive abilities that we'll be able to manage those risks. But within AI, we're now trusting it to a, a system. And, um, and I think that's what's kind of raising a lot of the concerns is that we really don't have enough experience yet with the technology to really understand when is it going to fail. Um, you know, we know humans enough to kind of have a sense of when we're going to fail. We don't necessarily know when AI is going to fail and it fails in different ways than we're used to. And so I think that that's leading to a lot of risks around accuracy and, you know, just the the ability to trust in, in the outcomes. So when you say AI fails and that it feels differently than humans do, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, I think what we have to think about differently, um, you know, AI doesn't tend to kind of see context around um, its um, its data points. It tends to optimize. And so most AI engines are built as optimization engines. So it tries to come up with the least amount of data it needs in order to come to its its conclusion. But sometimes that can actually create it to make the erroneous decision because the data it's relying on is in error and it doesn't have that broader context in order to second guess itself like a human would. So probably the best example I've ever seen is, is looking at an image and trying to decide whether an image is, you know, what it is. And what we've seen is that, you know, if you have a regular image of just over a thousand pixels, um, the AI agent will actually as you can see, like it's got a bunch of dots it will look at and it'll only pick certain pixels that it looks at and it'll then decide what it is. And there were some researchers that were able to change only one or two pixels and were able to fool the algorithm in actually thinking that um, a house was actually an airplane or a teddy bear was a gun. Like those are very significant differences that no human would ever make because we wouldn't just rely on individual pixels. We would look at the overall context of the picture. And so that's an error that AI makes. And another error that um, we've seen is that sometimes we don't realize what information it is relying on. There was a second set of algorithms, again, you know, similar type of image detection and, um, both algorithms had very high accuracy rates. And when they went and actually back-tested to what information they used, one algorithm did as you would expect, it looked at the different pixels. The second, however, had found that each of the pictures had a tag at the bottom that tagged what category of picture it was. So that algorithm went down to the bottom, said, well, the category is a horse, so it must be a horse. So as you can imagine, as you go to move each of those two out into production, without image data um, or without tagged data, um, you're going to find that actually one's going to work really well, the other one's going to fail completely. And so that just kind of goes to show just how difficult um, it can be to um, to train these in a way that they're going to actually operate in a, a more um, uncontrolled environment than you're expecting. Huh, that's fascinating. Not as good at the big picture quite literally then, I guess. 
So finally, what about performance risks? Yeah, so the performance risks are that right now we're still dealing with narrow AI. So it's been defined to work within a narrow um, set of uh, conditions and boundaries. It's not like a human, which would be considered more having general intelligence, where we do have the capability of being flexible and working from one situation to the next and can draw on all that kind of um, inference uh, knowledge in order to operate under those conditions. Whereas I think with AI right now, it's been purpose-built to work in a very narrow kind of use case. And um, so what we're finding is that that sometimes can uh, affect its, its performance. You know, certainly as it starts to move out into production environments and, and have to now operate with a much, a much more diverse set of variables and, and data. And, um, you know, accuracy can be, you know, significantly affected by that. So uh, having detailed all these risks, how do we develop trust in this new tool? Well, I think the first part is really to really understand how it's different from some of the traditional technologies. Like what is the main differences between a more rules-based system versus algorithmic probabilistic systems? And, and then how can we devise the right governance structure? There's, there's a lot that exists right now in entities to provide governance and controls over these systems, but they do need to be modified and they may need to be supplemented. And um, it's really important to have some uh, good data science expertise in order to really fully appreciate um, these risks. And, but, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really bullish. Like, even though I spend a lot of time talking about the risks and how it might go wrong, I am very bullish on the technology because I think it can provide us a lot of insights and um, is going to allow us to really get a lot of informational value out of all the data sets that, you know, are just proliferating right now across um, all of our different interactions. So we talked a bit about design earlier. And you hear the term a lot, trust by design, in reference to AI, also in the internet space, and EY uses that term a lot as well. What does it mean? Well, you know, trust by design was actually um, originally um, derived out of the concept of privacy by design. And, um, and the two are quite closely interrelated. And really what it is, is that you want to be thinking about how are you going to generate trust right from the very beginning stages of your project. And so thinking about what are going to be some of the potential stakeholder impacts, um, what might be some of those unintended outcomes, and how might you mitigate for those and build all of those into your requirements for the system. You know, really spend a lot of time at that design phase challenging as to what could go wrong and how then might we mitigate that and um, what are some of the social and ethical implications of these systems and really have some robust conversations with a diverse set of people. Like what I think right now is, is concerning is that so many of the people working on AI think the same. You know, like they they have had the same background, they have the same priorities and objectives and same knowledge bases. But what we really need to do is bring a lot of diversity of thought to these conversations so we can get a, a much more larger inventory of, um, you know, some of these what can go wrong statements so that, um, you know, we're really designing, you know, all of those elements into the AI algorithm right from the very beginning. So how can we ensure that it's safe and it's reliable and it's unbiased and it, you know, we has the right level of explainability. So I think that's really what's important there. Let's talk now about the role of CPA specifically in all of this. What's their role in offering insurance and securing trust in this area? Well, I think the very first role that we have is over data governance and, and integrity. You know, CPAs have for a long time, I think, been the steward of, of data. Um, we have, um, you know, a lot of experience in knowing how to create 
governance and control systems so that you can trust into data? And then how can you build the analytics over top of that data so that you can derive those insights and, and create informational value? And how do you build the right systems so that you can get the right data at the right time that's needed? And so I think that's really important for CPAs to really step into the, the data integrity. But I think what we need to do is we need to expand what we consider the important data sets. So we have to move beyond just the financial and capital type of data and move into customer data and, you know, um, some of the unstructured data, like some of the image data and, and some of the social media data. Um, and so, I, you know, I think there is, you know, a really important role for CPAs, but we have to understand that we've been kind of defining fairly narrowly in regards to um, what we thought was kind of in our purview of um, influence. And I think we really need to expand that to kind of a lot, much bigger set of, of data sets um, and think about how we can, you know, leverage our current foundation of knowledge around governance and controls and extend it across the, the full organization. Hmm. So some people might think it's self-defeating to facilitate and securitize entry into their area of expertise. It's a bit like a bus driver training autonomous driving systems to take over their jobs. So I mean, how do you see that? Well, you know, if you take an autonomous vehicle, for example, like I get quite bored after like a four hour drive, you know, I, I don't mind putting on the, you know, the cruise control. And so we need to take that same analogy to, uh, to AI and think about why would we not want to try and get, you know, and automate some of those more routine tasks. I don't want to spend a lot of time really going through a bunch of data sets. I'd much rather get, you know, those those rich insights out of the data and then spend more time thinking about what does it mean? Um, you know, how should I react? Um, you know, how can I leverage this information? You know, how can I increase the profit of my organization? Or how can I reduce costs or improve customer experience? Like, I'd much rather spend my time at that higher level cognitive thinking than in the, like, lower level of, like, trolling through data. And so I think that's where it's really exciting for me is those opportunities for CPAs to really step up our um, our involvement in uh, those more higher level cognitive functions that um, and leave AI to do kind of the more lower level stuff. It's much more about connecting with the client, I guess, in some ways. And like, what's the value added for the client? Exactly. And, you know, a, a lot of people think about AI as just part of that broad automation set of systems to make things more efficient, cost cutting, you know, reduce um, full-time equivalents, but really AI is actually technology that's best designed at that top line to be thinking about how to create more personalized customer experiences, um, how to better, um, you know, create more personalized ways of which to operate your businesses. And uh, that's where the real opportunity lies with AI. What do CPAs need to do then to ensure that they are set up to thrive in this environment? Well, I think the very first thing is really to educate themselves about what artificial intelligence is, you know, what its benefits of. Um, and then the second would be to really find where within the organization they're already starting to use some of these technologies. It doesn't tend to start in the finance organization, so but it does tend to start more in the operational areas. And so to really start getting involved in those type of projects. And what's most likely going to happen is that, um, A, there's a need for their functionality and helping to share, like I said before, the data quality and, you know, the governance and control structure. But what they'll also find is that once they get embedded into the projects, they're going to see that there is a downstream impact to the finance um, statements. There, There is a downstream opportunity to be taking that data and being better understand the value opportunities within the organization and to be able to really be able to work with that and to distill that and, and be able to kind of integrate that into the strategy of the organization and the way that they report. Because, you know, a lot of the reporting that CPAs 
to right now has been more finance and capital orientated. But there's so many other value um, categories within an organization. So, you know, can you get a better idea of the human value that you have within your organization or the, the, the customer value that you have in the network of customers that you have and the strength of trust and loyalty that you're able to, to generate with that customer base? And so that's where I think, you know, again, it, it, there's just such a uh, an exciting opportunity for CPAs to kind of really expand the way that they think about value beyond just the, you know, the core financial metrics. Great. Well, I think that's a hopeful note to leave this interview on. Thank you so much, Kathy. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. I learned a lot. Thank you, David. Foresight, the CPA podcast is created by CPA Canada for more information about the Foresight Initiative, head to foresight.cpacanada.ca. So until next time, I'm David McGuffin. Thanks so much for joining us. Please note the views expressed by our guests are theirs alone, and not necessarily the views of CPA Canada.